Hello and welcome to Speaking Spirit, where we talk about all things spiritual. Your host, John Moore, is a shamanic practitioner and spiritual teacher. And now, here's John. Hello, 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 everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. As I record this, it is the first day of February 2023, and I haven't talked to you in this format since 2022. It's been, in fact, it's been quite a number of months since I have recorded a new podcast, and um, I would say my apologies, I don't apologize for that. Uh, Ordinary reality sometimes gets in the way. Went through a big transition where uh, I bought a house and my girlfriend moved in and um, we've been doing construction and, um, you know, my my website kind of blew up and I've been getting invites to do interviews and um, requests for people interested in healing or becoming students or, wow. So, but I do want to get back to doing these on a regular basis, and hopefully we'll have some guests coming up for you as well, so you're not just listening to the sound of my voice. Pardon me if I'm a little scratchy, just having my morning coffee. Um, Yeah, it's early. I like to do these things fairly early. I'm I'm kind of a morning person. Today, I'm going to talk about enlightenment and the shamanic path. And the reason I want to talk about this is because these are not two things that are usually mentioned together, right? You don't, you have people who talk about enlightenment usually from uh, you know, some sort of Eastern spiritual perspective, right? From uh, Buddhism or Hinduism or, you know, whatever. Or even, I realize it's a different, uh, they use different terminology, but there are uh, Gnostic Christian practices that are designed to lead towards enlightenment and that sort of thing. And there aren't a lot of people who practice shamanism or talk about, I mean, maybe there are, and people just don't talk about it. There aren't a lot of people who practice shamanism with an eye towards enlightenment. And this is something I want to talk about a little bit because uh, shamanism is my current chosen path in this lifetime. And it offers so much in the way of spiritual awakening. But I think one of the reasons why people don't talk about enlightenment and shamanism too much is that very frequently the focus in shamanism becomes very pragmatic. It becomes very, not that enlightenment isn't necessarily pragmatic, but it becomes very much focused on ordinary reality. There are, most people practice shamanism sort of professionally, as I do, are focused on healing, right? Healing trauma, physical healing, that sort of thing. Working with the body, working with the mind, working with the emotions, 
And enlightenment kind of goes beyond all of those things. So I think it would be helpful if um, I talked a little bit about enlightenment and defining enlightenment, and I have to go back a little bit and talk about uh, talk about reality, existence, all of these things, and I'm going to do my best not to get bogged down in too much uh, flowery spiritual language or too many confusing things because I think this ha- this happens a lot and and one of the reasons this happens uh, I, I'm trying not to cast any judgment on anybody any system anything like that one of the reasons this happens is that a lot of our enlightenment practice comes from you know the east and the technical terminology is Sanskrit right usually Sanskrit or something, or they're using words in ways that aren't common in today's English, right? You know, they might talk about duality, but they don't really describe it. And they talk about samsara, and they talk about, um, you know, uh, samadhi and different levels of samadhi, and it it can get very, very technical, and just trying to wrap your mind around that is challenging. And and to be quite open and honest with you, you do not have to... Becoming enlightened isn't about knowing things necessarily. And I'm not claiming to be a fully enlightened being or, you know, whatever. That would be very egotistical on my behalf. But in a very real way, we are all enlightened beings, Already, there's just a part of us, the ego mind, the thinking mind, <clears throat> that that makes us think otherwise. Like we have thoughts that we are otherwise. And that feels very real to us. Reality feels very real. <laughs> um, the reality that we live in, the 3D reality. And this is where I think shamanism can sometimes flourish because it takes you out of ordinary reality very quickly, instantly in some cases, when you practice shamanism. So I I think, I'll get into this in a moment, I think practicing shamanism for spiritual growth is a fantastic idea. And do people do practice shamanism for their own benefit? That is, I know lots of people who practice shamanism and don't do it as a profession. They do it as part of their spiritual path. It's my spiritual path. I also happen to practice professionally. <clears throat> the other thing I love, one of the things I love about shamanism is it's non-dogmatic. So I can be a Christian shamanism or a Jewish shaman or a Buddhist shaman. And shamanism has no dogma, so there's no problem with any of that. There is, I, I had a client one time and, um, you know, she was like, well, you know, technically it's against my religion to see a shaman. I'm like, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I, I can't. 
I can't allay your fears other than to say I'm not conjuring demons here or trying to steal your soul, but, um, you know, shamanism has no problem with whatever your religion is. It may go in the opposite direction. Your religion might say you can't partake in spiritual healing of any kind. Seems like an odd position for a religion to, to take, but, you know, I understand that can be the case. But shamanism is a tool for individual discovery and individual spiritual development, I think is a good one. I think it's um, mostly underrated because its origins are extremely primitive, prehistoric. Shamanic practice is thought to go back uh, potentially before even modern anatomical humans in some cases. There might have been, who knows, there might have been Neanderthal shamans, right? Neanderthals, um, while not as technically advanced as modern humans, you know, as Homo sapiens, um, still made had were capable of symbolic thought and buried their dead <clears throat> with artifacts and... Um, you know, we do, we always paint them as this sort of brutish, you know, unthinking hominids. <laughs> and uh, that, you know, as we learn more about them, that might not be the case. And there are, um, there's evidence of that sort of thing in with other hominids as well. And this morning I was just reading an article about how there's, in this group of uh, these groups of chimpanzees in the in the western part of Africa, like Ivory Coast and that area, um, they've studied these groups of chimpanzees, and they are performing these kind of strange um, actions that have no survival benefit. That seem to be what they're calling proto rituals, early rituals. They're practicing ritualistic behavior. So, you know, it's possible. There's theories, of course, there's, you know, tons of arguments with anthropologists and zoologists and whoever about whether apes are going through their own Stone Age currently because um, some apes use tools. They fashion um, spears out of sticks and use them for hunting they use stone tools to do things like crack open fruit, and um, now they're performing, you know, they're performing ritualistic action. So interesting stuff. Anyway, um, shamanism is very is prehistoric. It's primitive. It doesn't have the tradition, the the built up doctrine, and of you know, more modern religions. And by more modern, I include things like Hinduism, which is, you know, 6,000 years old. Or Zoroastrianism, which is, you know, thousands of years older than Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. So those, those paths, you know, those doctrines, they, you know, we, we don't have that in in uh, shamanism, because shamanism predates writing. Anyway, let's talk about let's talk about enlightenment a little bit. And, and this is a you know 
this is a phrase that is, you know, hard to grasp a little bit because there aren't amazing definitions out there. Right. And then there are, there are, um, contradictory definitions. There are in, pardon me, excuse me. I don't edit these usually. So if I have a little cough or sneeze, you'll pardon me. And I don't edit them for a reason. I, you know, I want this to be just me talking or just me in dialogue with somebody without cleaning up my mistakes or, or whatever. There's, there's a method to my madness. I'm going to have a little, a little something in my throat. I'm going to have a little sip of coffee here. One day I will discover if there's a God somewhere associated with coffee and I will build an altar unto that God. I don't know. It's coffee come from Ethiopia originally. I'm not, I, I don't know where coffee comes from originally. I know it's grown heavily in the Americas, but I don't know if it, it originated here or not. I'll find out. I'll do some research before my next podcast. Maybe I'll do a whole episode on the sacred nature of coffee and cacao. Oh my gosh. Wow. Like we think of like going out and buying a, a candy bar at the store as chocolate. But if you've never experienced ceremonial cacao, it's so drinking chocolate, like actual drinking chocolate in ritual form it's it's a the psychoactive components of chocolate come to the forefront it makes you feel warm and loved and um there's a reason why um the coffee plant is uh in in scientific um you know in in the scientific terminology is theobromine right? Is theobromine is the um, is food of the literally food of the gods, <laughs> um, and I concur. I love chocolate, uh, but maybe I'll talk about cacao ceremony in another uh, in another episode. But let's go into let's go into enlightenment a little bit. Let's talk about enlightenment a little bit, and I'm going to talk about a model of everything, a model of, of existence and how existence works. Now, this is a model, and all models are imperfect because all models do two things. They distort and they delete information. But we measure a model in its usefulness. For example, I might have a map of a street map in my phone, use my GPS and the street map is important. Now the street map is an abstraction. It's a model. It's not, you know, we don't drive on our phones. Hopefully not anyway, be the end of your phone. Um, I don't drive on my phone, but I can look at the map as a representation of the streets that I'm driving on and get to where I'm going. In that case, it's useful but it's not the same thing, and it deletes information. My, the map in my phone doesn't show topography, for example. But if I wanted to know how tall a mountain was, for example, near me, or where a flood zone was, I might use a different kind of model, a map that represented the same thing from a different perspective and show a topographical map. 
or you know sometimes pe- people now with um you know computer graphics and stuff create some really cool maps right so you might see a map of an area like your state you live in with <clears throat> you know crime rates in different colors depending on the area right and that's useful for a certain type of thing but it's not going to help you navigate from one place to another and it's not going to show you how tall a mountain is so my model the way that I'm going to describe reality and the way that the universe works is both imperfect, incomplete and distorted but useful from one from a certain perspective from my perspective anyway you might not find it useful that's fine for your purposes but um you know it's not to say you you look at this model and go well that's wrong because that's not what i was taught or whatever set that aside for a moment and just um if you set aside doubt for a moment you can bring it back after and you can completely throw this model out and i have no problem with that but for the purpose of this conversation, this model will be useful. So, whether you are Christian or atheist or whatever, we'll talk about the universe. And the, the reality is that there are, you know, maybe maybe infinite universes, the multiverse, right? But let's just talk about the universe for a moment. And there was a point in time where nothing, you know, where the universe didn't exist. Whether you are, you know, religious, spiritual but not religious, atheistic, you know, that that's an understanding. There was no time, there was no space, there was, you know, some something, something existed before everything. And that something was really outside of our con- what we conceive of as time and space. We could call that source, we could call that God, we could call that the proto-universe, whatever. I don't know. I don't know what scientists call it. What, what was there before the Big Bang? Everything in the universe was in a particle smaller than an atom. Think about that. And then you know, source, God, the universe, whatever, expanded into everything that we know and continues to expand and infinite diversity, expansion and change and all of these things. Let's talk about this from a spiritual perspective, from a God perspective or source perspective. I'm going to use the word source but if you prefer the word God, or you prefer the word Brahman, or you prefer the word whatever, you can fill in with that. I'm, I'm going to use the word source, because source doesn't have a lot of baggage. The word God has a lot of baggage to it. And by, just by baggage, I mean, I'm not dissing the concept of God. I'm just saying, like, people have piled a lot of different meanings onto that word. We've anthropomorphized God sometimes to be this, uh, you know, bearded dude standing in the clouds. And that's a very limiting view 
of source. So, source, think of consciousness and all pervasive, like, think of a mind or consciousness that is all there is. But all there is includes no limitation. There's no time, there's no space, there's no matter, there's no gravity, there's no, um, there are no trees or suns or stars or anything like that. But there is consciousness, right? There is this one consciousness, this one thing, this source. And this consciousness, and again, this is a model, wants, what does everything there is want, but decides to have experience, decides to experience things, to have different experiences for whatever reason. We probably can't really know the reason. How does this consciousness have experience? You know, how does it entertain itself or know things or learn about itself? How do experiences arise in this source consciousness? And what it has to do is it has to create, the source has to create the appearance, because real boundaries and limitations, if you are all there is, don't exist. There are no boundaries, there are no limitations, there's no time and space. So it has to create things like time and space. And it has to create the illusion for of separation of individual consciousnesses, like little bubbles of itself floating around. And that's what we are. That's what everything is. When we see ourselves as separate from God or from others or from nature from or from all there is, we're this little floating collection of illusory limitations. And I say illusory because we're still a part of that source. So one metaphor that I like to use, and again, this is a very limited model, metaphor. If you think of source, if you think of God, if you think of all there is as this infinite beam of white light passing through empty space. Now, if you look at a beam of light passing through space, you will see nothing. Right? Like if, you, if there's a beam of light passing in front of you in empty space, you don't see it because it's not reflecting off of anything into your eyes. If you shine the light directly into your eyes, yes. Or if it hits an object, yes. So in order to experience itself, this infinite beam of white light has to set up limitations surfaces to reflect off of, right? So it just puts up a surface and the white light reflects back to it back to it and says, okay, well, that's sort of, that's a lot. That's everything there is. And I already know that I'm everything there is. How do I explore? How do I experience everything there is? So we take that white light and we put a prism in front of it, Right? 
we've probably all done this in school at some point where you have, you know, a triangular prism and you shine a white light on it and it spreads out into the spectrum of light. So this white light that is pure consciousness separates itself out into individuated beams of consciousness and then sets up limitations, things that for these beams to reflect off of so that experience can arise in this field of consciousness. And that's us. We're a beam. We, we as an individualized consciousness, are one of those tiny beams of light spread out by that prism. One of infinite beams of light spread out by that prism. But we're a different, we are one frequency and our next door neighbor is a different frequency. And the tree that we're looking at is a different frequency and our cat is a different frequency. But it's all conscious and it's all part of source. If, If you were able to block off that white light or turn it off and you can't, nothing would exist that you know the the prism is not what's creating the separation is not what's creating our consciousness nothing is creating our consciousness our consciousness just exists but it exists as <clears throat> one color one frequency of that white light that is all frequencies So if you were able to turn off the white light, then it would, you know, all frequencies would cease to exist instantaneously. Nothing would exist. There would be no time, no space, no consciousness, no material, nothing. Nothing would exist because white light is the source. It's everything. And everything at its core is consciousness. Even the things that we think of as things. Hold up a rock. That rock we know on a physical level is primarily empty space. The parts that aren't empty space are physically are, um, you know, electrons and other subatomic particles floating around in space. But the majority of that is is empty, is nothingness. But what what's behind that? What's behind the subatomic particles? What's what holds that rock in place? Is consciousness. Beneath it all. So our reality beneath, and there are many, so the other thing about this division, this spectrum, this, you know, this wonderful thing, this is not to say that the physical world isn't beautiful and wonderful and, you know, a delightful thing to explore. 
<clears throat> it's just that at one and in, in one angle of it, one in in under the underlying spiritual reality of it is that it's illusory that we are seeing things not as they are, but as they are arising as experience in our consciousness. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not bad. And it's also not the case that I can decide the laws of physics don't apply to me all of a sudden. Because the laws of physics are arising in my consciousness. Are there people who have had spiritual realization to the point where they can defy the laws of physics? Um, Seemingly so. I have experienced things uh, personally. I have witnessed things personally that don't have an explanation in what shamans call ordinary reality. So, you know, we would call it glitches in the matrix, perhaps. Um, but there, you know, there are people who are developed to a level spiritually where they can, where they have um, siddhas or powers or, you know, whatever. People who, generally people who live in a state of enlightenment, um, throw away their siddhas. Like powers are something you pick up and this is, you know, my understanding. I'm not saying that I'm I'm not describing myself as an enlightened saint or something. Um, you pick up powers along the way. So I've known known people and known of people who had developed certain spiritual abilities and then realized that those are a little bit of a trap along the way, the same way that... Um, illusory thinking it's just one step along the path to say oh oh yeah 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 this is just to point out how um what i think is real is not really real like it's not the reality behind the reality so let's get to enlightenment what enlightenment is then is a return to source so let's say i follow my Let's say my beam of light is purple. I hope it is. I love purple. I follow that beam back using whatever technique, using meditation, for example, using using shamanic journeying, using gnosis of some sort. I follow that beam back and I realize that all is one underneath. That's kind of step one. Right? Is this realization? Is this mental realization? Because I'm still existing. Intellectually, I can know that all is one. But I'm still knowing from a single mind perspective. So, you know, and this again is... There are spiritual systems where there are many, many, many levels of enlightenment, very technically described levels of enlightenment. You know, Tibetan Buddhism talks about creating the rainbow body that survives death and, you know, having all of this stuff. Um, And again, different models, different paintings of reality. If you and I were looking at the same sunset and creating a painting, we would create two different paintings, right? Is your painting 
more real than mine? No. They're different perspectives. So, enlightenment essentially is not just a realization that we are source, that the, the underneath it all is non-duality, meaning we are the understanding, the realization that we are all one, but it's absorption in that. Now, becoming absorbed in non-duality doesn't necessarily mean that this body-mind ceases to exist. This body-mind can still exist, but the self that I experience as I starts to melt away a little bit. This body-mind can still exist as part of that spectrum that's broken apart. This body-mind can uh, teach others and lead others back to source. And still have experiences. But the ego part, and I'll have to define ego too, because this is a term that comes up a lot. The ego is just the sum total experience of I as a separate being. That's it. It's the experience of I as a separate being. Now, that experience includes lots of things. It includes identifications, things that this experience of I identifies as. I think I am a man, a 50, almost 51, I'm about to, about to be my birthday. I think that I am a 50-year-old man who lives in the state of Maine in the U.S. and has two kids and a girlfriend and a dog and a cat. Is that who I really am? Well, I have a sense of that. I have a sense that that I is speaking to you on this podcast. Underneath that, though, underneath behind that ego, if I transcend that ego, there is no difference between this self the real self, and everything else there is. That oneness. So let's talk about how shamanism might work with this. One of the things that the practice of shamanism lends to is an experience of oneness first with nature, right? First with spirits of nature and the natural world around us. Shamanism is very nature-based. And this is one of the ways we experience the world around us as individuals, right? We see the trees and the rocks and the rivers. But underneath that all, when you practice shamanism, you see, A, the interconnectedness of all things. 
So it really is only one further step to understand the common source of all things. How are we all interconnected? How am I connected to the tree that I'm looking at? And and I can experience that tree as being conscious. You might think I'm crazy, but I can have a conversation with that tree when I enter the right state of mind. Why can I have a conversation with that tree? Because it's conscious. And its consciousness is a different flavor. It's a different frequency. It's a different shade of light than my differentiated consciousness. But we have the same source consciousness. And that is God, Source, Brahman, the universe, whatever. We are all one. So enlightenment is about movement towards unity consciousness. Now there are stories of people, saints and cities and whatever, who... um achieve enlightenment, and disappear bodily, who decide, yeah, yeah, I'm done with this individuated experience. And either their body dies, usually very peacefully, or in kind of a weird, there are, you know, monks who um, train for death, for example, and meditate until they pass away, but they're passing into a state of, they're passing into a different form of consciousness. Well, death is a passage into a different form of consciousness, but they're passing into a very specific form of consciousness. There are these like mummified monks in Japan and some other places um, where they do this very specific meditation practice where they sit for three years in meditation and eat very specific things and do very specific practices and they pass away, they die, the body dies and the body is placed in a special chamber for some period of time, I don't know, seven years or something and when they take it out, the body has not decomposed. It's as if this person is still sitting in that enlightened state and it's an indicator to the monks who have worked with this person that um, you know, it's a physical indicator for them and their belief system that this person has passed into this state of enlightenment. They're no, not really, they're not identified with the body anymore. The body and mind, the body and the brain and the, that part of the mind have uh, ceased to be. So enlightenment doesn't mean you don't, you know, your body, my mind doesn't die. Your consciousness exists forever and has existed forever, and it technically is beyond space and time. This is the other realization that shamanism gives us, is that space and time in spiritual terms really break down. Like we can explore the past, we can explore the future, but I can interact with, I can do a session with somebody who's on the other side of the world, and I have. 
and they can experience something as I'm experiencing it here. How could that be if we're not connected somehow? But we are. Underneath it all, we're connected. Another realization that happens from shamanism is, as I have done, when you heal yourself, as I've done my own self-healing, the world around me heals as well. There's a very interesting, um, from the original Holy Grail stories that come out of Europe and the area known as the UK, is the story of the fisher king or the wealthy fisherman or, you know, whatever. There are many different forms of it. But this is... um, you know, a, a king or a rich fisherman who is wounded and has a wound, has a sort of a magical wound that doesn't heal. And all around him, the land that he lives in is in a blight, seems to be associated with his wound. And then the knight comes along or whatever in the story comes along and asks him some questions, asks him some correct questions, some magical process happens. There's a, a grail, which sometimes is a cup and sometimes is a platter of food. In the earliest stories about it, it is not the cup of Christ. That is a Christianization of the Holy Grail that came later. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of archetypal stuff going on here, but um, there is, you know, this healing that happens and when it happens it heals the land and the rivers start to run and the plants start to bloom and the kingdom is saved so it's about it is about this interconnectedness it is about this mat this magic of healing when you heal the self the world around it heals as well because it's all interconnected underneath it all so personally I believe that shamanism is a fantastic path for spiritual healing. I have healed a lot from that. But it's also a fantastic path for doing exploration beyond just healing. And part of this is that our 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 wounds, inner or outer wounds, only exists in a state of perceived imperfection. You know, and there's a lot of people say that you are whole and complete and perfect just as you are. But you look at yourself and you say, but I've got back pain and I've got poor vision and I've got this and I've got that and I've got trauma and depression and... Um, addiction and all of these things. Yes, your body-mind has those things, but the you that you are underneath it all, the unity that you are, the divine spark, your beam is unbroken. You cannot break that connection to source. Or you would completely cease to exist. You would never have existed. Because time and space are not things in at that level of reality. 
So anyway, um, I will talk more about this in the future, and I will uh, perhaps bring some guests on and talk about, um, you know, realization of non-duality and put that in a context with shamanism, perhaps. With that, I hope you are happy, healthy, and well, and I will talk to you very soon. been listening to Speaking Spirit with your host, John Moore. For more info or to contact John, go to mainshaman.com. That's M-A-I-N-E-S-H-A-M-A-N.com.